This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott, and welcome to the SFF Audio Podcast. This week we have Greg Marguerite of LibriVox reading Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. And stay tuned after the story for a discussion of the story. Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. Larry Thomas bought a cuckoo clock for his wife, without knowing the price he would have to pay. That night at the dinner-table he brought it out and set it down beside her plate. Doris stared at it, her hand to her mouth. "'My God! What is it?' She looked up at him bright-eyed. "'Well, open it!' Doris tore the ribbon and paper from the square package with her sharp nails, her bosom rising and falling. Larry stood watching her as she lifted the lid. He lit a cigarette and leaned against the wall. "'A cuckoo clock!' Doris cried. "'A real old cuckoo clock, just like my mother had!' She turned the clock over and over. "'Just like my mother had when Pete was still alive!' Her eyes sparkled with tears. "'It's made in Germany,' Larry said. After a moment he added, "'Carl got it for me wholesale. He knows some guy in the clock business. Otherwise I would have—' He stopped. Doris made a funny little sound. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford it." He scowled. What, "'What's the matter with you? You've got your clock, haven't you? Isn't that what you want?' Doris sat holding on to the clock, her fingers pressed against the brown wood. "'Well,' Larry said, "'what's the matter?' He watched in amazement as she leaped up and ran from the room, still clutching the clock. He shook his head. "'Never satisfied. They're all that way. Never get enough.' He sat down at the table and finished his meal. The cuckoo clock was not very large. It was handmade, however, and there were countless frets on it, little indentations and ornaments scored into the soft wood. Doris sat on the bed, drying her eyes and winding the clock. She set the hands by her wristwatch. Presently she carefully moved the hands to two minutes of ten. She carried the clock over to the dresser and propped it up. Then she sat waiting, her hands twisting together in her lap waiting for the cuckoo to come out, for the hour to strike. As she sat, she thought about Larry and what he had said, and what she had said, too, for that matter. Not that she could be blamed for any of it. After all, she couldn't keep listening to him forever without defending herself. You had to blow your own trumpet in the world. She touched her handkerchief to her eyes suddenly. Why did he have to say that about getting it wholesale? Why did he have to spoil it all? If he felt that way, he needn't have gotten in the first place. She clenched her fists. He was so mean, so damn mean. But she was glad of the little clock sitting there ticking to itself, with its funny grilled edges and the door. Inside the door was the cuckoo, waiting to come out. Was he listening, his head cocked on one side, listening to hear the clock strike so that he would know to come out? Did he sleep between hours? Well, she would soon see him. She could ask him, and she would show the clock to Bob. He would love it. Bob loved old things, even old stamps and buttons. He liked to go with her to the stores. Of course, it was a little awkward, 
but Larry had been staying at the office so much, and that helped. If only Larry didn't call up sometimes to— There was a whir. The clock shuddered, and all at once the door opened. The cuckoo came out, sliding swiftly. He paused and looked around solemnly, scrutinizing her, the room, the furniture. It was the first time he had seen her, she realized, smiling to herself in pleasure. She stood up, coming toward him shyly. Go on, she said. I'm waiting. The cuckoo opened his bill. He whirred and chirped quickly, rhythmically. Then, after a moment of contemplation, he retired, and the door snapped shut. She was delighted. She clapped her hands and spun in a little circle. He was marvelous, perfect, and the way he had looked around, studying her, sizing her up. He liked her. She was certain of it. And she, of course, loved him at once, completely. He was just what she had hoped would come out of the little door. Doris went to the clock. She bent over the little door, her lips close to the wood. Do you hear me? she whispered. I think you're the most wonderful cuckoo in the world. She paused, embarrassed. I hope you'll like it here. Then she went downstairs again, slowly, her head high. Larry and the cuckoo clock really never got along well from the start. Doris said it was because he didn't wind it right, and it didn't like being only half-wound all the time. Larry turned the job of winding over to her. The cuckoo came out every quarter hour and ran the spring down without remorse, and someone had to be ever after it, winding it up again. Doris did her best, but she forgot a good deal of the time. Then Larry would throw his newspaper down with an elaborate, weary motion and stand up. He would go into the dining room where the clock was mounted on the wall over the fireplace. He would take the clock down, and making sure that he had his thumb over the little door, he would wind it up. Why do you put your thumb over the door? Doris asked once. You're supposed to. She raised an eyebrow. Are you sure? I wonder if it isn't that you don't want him to come out while you're standing so close. Why not? Maybe you're afraid of him. Larry laughed. He put the clock back on the wall and gingerly removed his thumb. When Doris wasn't looking, he examined his thumb. There was still a trace of the nick cut out of the soft part of it. Who or what had pecked at him? One Saturday morning, when Larry was down at the office working over some important special accounts, Bob Chambers came to the front porch and rang the bell. Doris was taking a quick shower. She dried herself and slipped into her robe. When she opened the door, Bob stepped inside, grinning. Hi, he said, looking around. It's all right? Larry's at the office? Fine. Bob gazed at her slim legs below the hem of the robe. How nice you look today. She laughed. Be careful. Maybe I shouldn't let you in after all. They looked at one another, half amused, half frightened. Presently Bob said, If you want, I'll— No, for God's sake! She caught hold of his sleeve. Just get out of the doorway so I can close it. Mrs. Peters across the street, you know. She closed the door. And I want to show you something, she said. You haven't seen it. He was interested. An antique or what? She took his arm, leading him toward the dining room. You'll love it, Bobby. She stopped, wide-eyed. I hope you will. You must. You must love it. It means so much to me. He means so much. He? Bob frowned. Who is he? Doris laughed. You're jealous. Come on. A moment later they stood before the clock, looking up at it. He'll come out in a few minutes. Wait until you see him. I know you two will get along just fine. What does Larry think of him? They don't like each other. Sometimes when Larry's here he won't come out. 
Larry gets mad if he doesn't come out on time. He says, says what? Doris looked down. He always says that he's been robbed, even if he did get it wholesale. She brightened. But I know he won't come out because he doesn't like Larry. When I'm here alone, he comes right out for me every fifteen minutes, even though he really only has to come out on the hour. She gazed up at the clock. He comes out for me because he wants to. We talk. I tell him things, of course. I'd like to have him upstairs in my room, but it wouldn't be right. There was the sound of footsteps on the front porch. They looked at each other, horrified. Larry pushed the front door open, grunting. He set his briefcase down and took off his hat. Then he saw Bob for the first time. Chambers! I'll be damned! His eyes narrowed. What are you doing here? He came into the dining room. Doris drew her robe about her, helplessly backing away. I, Bob began, that is, we, he broke off, glancing at Doris. Suddenly the clock began to whir. The cuckoo came rushing out, bursting into sound. Larry moved towards him. Shut that din off, he said. He raised his fist toward the clock. The cuckoo snapped into silence and retreated. The door closed. That's better. Larry studied Doris and Bob, standing mutely together. I came over to look at the clock, Bob said. Doris told me that it's a rare antique and that— Nuts! I bought it myself. Larry walked up to him. Get out of here. He turned to Doris. You too. And take that damn clock with you. He paused, rubbing his chin. No. Leave the clock here. It's mine. I bought it and paid for it. In the weeks that followed after Doris left, Larry and the cuckoo clock got along even worse than before. For one thing, the cuckoo stayed inside most of the time, sometimes even at twelve o'clock when he should have been busiest. And if he did come out at all, he usually spoke only once or twice, never the correct number of times. And there was a sullen, uncooperative note in his voice, a jarring sound that made Larry uneasy and a little angry. But he kept the clock wound, because the house was very still and quiet, and it got on his nerves not to hear someone running around talking and dropping things and even the whirring of a clock sounded good to him. But he didn't like the cuckoo at all, and sometimes he spoke to him. Listen, he said late one night to the closed little door, I know you can hear me. I ought to give you back to the Germans, back to the Black Forest. He paced back and forth. I wonder what they're doing now, the two of them, that young punk with his books and his antiques. A man shouldn't be interested in antiques. That's for women. He set his jaw. Isn't that right?" The clock said nothing. Larry walked up in front of it. Isn't that right? he demanded. Don't you have anything to say? He looked at the face of the clock. It was almost eleven, just a few seconds before the hour. All right. I'll wait until eleven. Then I want to hear what you have to say. You've been pretty quiet these last few weeks since she left. He grinned wryly. Maybe you don't like it here since she's gone. He scowled. Well, I paid for you, and you're coming out whether you like it or not. You hear me?" Eleven o'clock came. Far off at the end of town the great tower clock boomed sleepily to itself. But the little door remained shut. Nothing moved. The minute hand passed on, and the cuckoo did not stir. He was someplace inside the clock, beyond the door, silent and remote. All right, if that's the way you feel, Larry murmured, his lips twisting. But it isn't fair. It's your job to come out. We all have to do things we don't like." He went unhappily into the kitchen and opened the great gleaming refrigerator. As he poured himself a drink, he thought about the clock. There was no doubt about it. The cuckoo should come out. Doris or no Doris. 
He had always liked her from the very start. They had got along well, the two of them. Probably he liked Bob, too. Probably he had seen enough of Bob to get to know him. They would be quite happy together, Bob and Doris and the cuckoo. Larry finished his drink. He opened the drawer at the sink and took out the hammer. He carried it carefully into the dining room. The clock was ticking gently to itself on the wall. Look, he said, waving the hammer, you know what I have here? You know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to start on you first. He smiled. Birds of a feather. That's what you are. The three of you. The room was silent. Are you coming out or do I have to come in and get you? The clock whirred a little. I hear you in there. You've got a lot of talking to do. Enough for the last three weeks, as I figure it. You owe me. The door opened. The cuckoo came out fast, straight at him. Larry was looking down, his brow wrinkled in thought. He glanced up and the cuckoo caught him squarely in the eye. Down he went, hammer and chair and everything, hitting the floor with a tremendous crash. For a moment the cuckoo paused, its small body poised rigidly. Then it went back inside the house. The door snapped tight shut after it. The man lay on the floor, stretched out grotesquely, his head bent over to one side. Nothing moved or stirred. The room was completely silent, except, of course, for the ticking of the clock. I see, Doris said, her face tight. Bob put his arm around her, steadying her. Doctor, Bob said, can I ask you something? Of course, the doctor said. Is it very easy to break your neck falling from so low a chair? It wasn't very far to fall. I wonder if it might not have been an accident. Is there any chance it might have been suicide? The doctor rubbed his jaw. I never heard of anyone committing suicide that way. It was an accident. I'm positive. I don't mean suicide, Bob murmured under his breath, looking up at the clock on the wall. I meant something else. But no one heard him. End of Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Greg. Hello, hello. Nice hello. to have you guys again. Hey, morning. Hey, today we're going to talk about uh, Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick, the story you just heard on the podcast, and uh, about a very angry bird. <laughs> oh, good yeah, one. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. That's an angry bird, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> must be an app for that. Uh, <laughs> Greg, you, you were saying that this is a puff piece where there's a... Oh, no, he just had... Philip K. Dick just had to make 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 his rent or had yeah, to eat. I, I, I just saying it was a pot boiler. I don't think he put those elements that we all like best into this story. It's a, it's a script uh, written in the 50s that I might have sent to Rod Serling for a Twilight Zone episode in between the ones that are really good. Did you send it to Rod Serling? No. Okay. <laughs> Just My name is Talkie Tina. No. What's that? I was thinking of the Talkie Tina episode of Twilight Zone. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fine. With Kojak. Uh, um, what, what, what episode is that? Where that, do you know who Kojak is? Tully Savalas? Yeah. And uh, I guess he's having a bad relationship with his family, and uh, the doll starts to talk to him, and it says, My name is Talkatina, and you're going to be sorry. <laughs> it, it goes through like that. I don't remember that one. I've got them awesome. all, but my favorites. Yeah, it sounds good. I think she makes him jump out the window or something at the end. They're in a hotel arguing. Making, making Kojak jump out the window. 
Spoiler. <laughs> well, you didn't have and, and, uh, the, the Simpsons did a version of it, too. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, Clown Without Pity as a clown doll. This must have been during... Um, yeah, that would that have been a Halloween special or something. Exactly. Yeah, Treehouse yeah. of Horrors. Yeah, and I think you know there's a night gallery episode where a, a British guy who was in India gets sent a doll for his niece who he's taking care of, and it's actually been created by his former enemies, and it's you know comes down the hall and tries to kill him and all this sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, I guess we get Chucky and all mm-hmm. that too. Hey, uh, we're we're yeah, clowns. We're talking about- Dolls. Were clowns always scary, or do they just get scarier uh, with time? Uh, it's all Stephen I, King's fault. Is it? I thought maybe I it think, is. Well, it, it, you know, exaggeration is at the heart of both horror and humor. So it's not hard to cross that line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just exaggerated features and stuff. I mean, you're a kid, you're you're doing pattern recognition, you've got a bunch of human faces in your head, and all of a sudden, this grotesquely exaggerated thing pops its face in and pulls a quarter from behind your ear, and it's just too freaky, man. <laughs> and you yeah. run over the room in and then, terror. I wonder what the percentage of kids are that uh, freak out at that point immediately or wait until they're adults to start freaking out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But I it, it, it was one scary book. Um, that was a good book. Well, this yeah, this is a TV movie. This story has something something to that. I mean, it's it's an automaton, I guess, if, rather than like a, just a doll or a clown, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's like a a a, ro- a very primitive robot, I guess. But well, it, it, this is got to be a fantasy story <laughs> in every well, kind of sense, right? It's yeah, I mean, like isn't it isn't tale. it kind of related to oh, a almost like a a haunted house? You know, uh, it's a, a cuckoo clock, but the cuckoo clock is haunted in in a way. Or possessed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, she she assumes that it's going to have this intelligence or malice or... Yeah, and that's one interesting thing that, about the story to me is that does. she seems to know that something's up with that thing immediately. It was, it was almost like something that she's been through before. Yes. Now, uh, th- that's where I start to get my understanding, right? Uh, I wanted to talk, like, there's, it's such a short story. There's such a short story. I mean, incredibly short. And yet there's a lot of detail. A lot of detail that um, comes up that I was going, what, what, what does that mean? So I wanted to throw the first thing that struck me as, what? what, what why is that in there? So it goes like this. A cuckoo clock, Doris cried. A real old cuckoo clock, like my mother had. Okay. And then she says, she, uh, oh, it says, she turned the clock over and over, just like my mother had when Pete was, a, was still alive. Um, who's Pete? I was thinking, is that her dad? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it can't be her dad, because she wouldn't call him Pete. She'd call him... Her, it's her brother. Yeah, her brother. It's her brother. The dog. It's her brother. It's got to be her brother, right? Well, uh, later on, later on, I think I've got some evidence for being her brother. <laughs> okay, but it could have been her dog. But what? 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 what there, uh, although do- uh, Philip K. Dick likes dogs, I don't think there's any uh, significance to it being a dog. 
No. I can't, I can't no. think of any. But I think it's her brother. Uh, when Pete was still left, so her younger brother who died is what I'm thinking, right? Yeah, Pete now that we've now that we've read Yeah, now that we've read the story, we'd have to assume that he died in the same way. Well, I think that that's a <laughs> I think that that's a uh, interesting analysis, but I don't think that's what happened. Okay. Um okay. So, uh it's made in Germany. Uh, I think that's where Kuckoo are from Germanic states, if not Germany, right? That yeah, makes sense. He, he says he's going to send the clock back to the Germans in the Black Forest. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. Um, it's sort of like a hunting lodge clock, I think, is, is the idea behind Kuku clocks. Um, but then, uh, see, I, when I first read the story, I thought, what's wrong with this woman? She's crazy. I mean, the guy says, I got a great deal on this clock. I hope you like it. And she freaks out and runs out of the room. No, yeah, but it was it, it was written in the fifties. <laughs> Frank, I mean, Frank, you're, you're you're excusing it. I think there's something in here. I think there's something that, deep in here. No, I mean that 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 archetype existed. Yeah, that, and and still does to this day, just not in in as great a number. But I, I think that women felt uh, far less empowered back then, and. Uh, that causes you to examine everything that goes on. And, you know, I mean, I understand. She said she wanted the clock. He bought her the clock and he said, and it only cost me this much. And then yeah. she says something like, you know, why does he have to ruin everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and but I, th- I think that that's what we're supposed to think. I think that that is not the reason she's upset, even though that's what she says to herself. Right. I mean, she's unhappy in her marriage. And, well, there's and, that too. But I think, I think, uh, uh, she's happy that she got this cuckoo clock, but she's also sad because of this cuckoo clock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I figured it out. I figured it out last night. Mm-hmm. You guys like, have read so much into this story. It's, it's, I mean, we should have Umberto Echo here to talk about the role of the reader. It's amazing yeah. what you guys have added well, to this thing. I, I, think there's something, I think there's something going on in here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I was kind of. I was connecting the Black Forest to Grimm's fairy tales. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that that's the Germans. That's in there. We've been spending a lot of time with Eric Rabkin. I think is, is the issue. <laughs> Everything means yeah, something. Yeah. We're, we're amateur professors now. That's right. We're, we're modeling ourselves on. So the, uh, the cuckoo clock is Grimm's cuckoo clock. So it could be a well, Warehouse it's, 13 it's episode. Much, it's very much like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a a fairy tale. I mean, the way uh, the way Greg starts it, right? You've got Larry Thomas bought a cuckoo clock for his wife without knowing the price he'd pay, and that feels like it's the first line of the story, even though it's not. It's uh, sort of the um, if it is the first line, it's set aside from the rest of the text. And then that night at the dinner table, right? So the first part makes it sound like a like a a moral lesson. Right. Yeah, I think that line was a call out I can, in, in the magazine itself. Yeah, it's 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 separated by in bold, but you didn't uh, make a massive like you didn't put a big pause in it. Maybe that. I, had, I like, had just started doing audio books, and I, I apologize to the audience. I did not find it that. to be a problem. I just wanted I, to I say that. It, yeah. In my early recordings, I you can hear me read. I, I didn't. 
uh, you know, it's 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 two and a half years old that recording, and I like to think I've made some progress. Well, <laughs> let me let me give you the editorial um, line. But, uh, I heard a woman read it. Oh yeah, there's a woman, a uh, female version as well. Um, yeah, that's the one that was me in my female voice. Yeah, hey, uh, uh, the, the project, um, just Jesse, the project Gutenberg um, version does have that mm-hmm. line at the beginning in bold. So mm-hmm. it, it is like, you know, I think like Greg said, it's a call out that was there um, probably in the original magazine. But look at the editorial before that. That's, uh, let's read that. And I think, I think it's... Did you ever wonder, it, starting there? Yeah, and it's, notice this is published in Fantastic Universe, which is, uh, it says Fantastic Universe Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. So I think this is trying to be like FNSF. It's uh-huh. trying to be both. Right. Okay. So it says, um, did you ever wonder at the lonely life the bird in a cuckoo clock has to lead that it might possibly love and hate just as easily as a real animal of flesh and blood? Philip Dick used that idea for this brief fantasy tale. We're sure that after reading it, you'll give cuckoo clocks more respect. <laughs> well, I I think that that's not the best editorial other than uh, the the first line I think is okay. Uh, like, Giving cuckoo clocks more respect. This isn't about cuckoo clocks. Well, this is not a story about cuckoo clocks. I think. I think this is about the cuckoo bird, uh, and and the cuckoo egg. Is there an egg? Oh. Yeah, I think there is. I think his name is Pete. Ooh. Now you seeing yeah. something deeper in here? <laughs> well. I understand where you're going. I, I just, I, I think that Phil had a, a lot of personal interrelationship problems and <laughs> the stories that don't contain a lot of uh, clever ideas and hooks in them have more of that in there, you know, Perky Pat. And I mean, just, just all the kind of stuff that he, if his own stuff. Yeah. I am probably the only one here, and correct me if I'm wrong, and it's been a good 15, maybe 20 years, but I did slog my way through the exegesis. And, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I'd rather read James Joyce. But, but anyway, um, it, it, it just in that context, it makes a lot more sense that he's, he's you know, he sits down in front of the typewriter, and he says, what am I thinking? Mm-hmm. And he starts typing. Sometimes he sits down and says, what am I feeling? And yeah. writes that. And, and this is a feeling story. Absolutely a feeling story, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some stuff that doesn't work uh, as to the general theme. But I think if we keep going, I think you'll see exactly what, what uh, struck me after the fifth, fifth time through. I mean, I, got, I, think, I think I got stuff on the third time. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, there's something there. And then what about this? keep thinking about that and then okay. the final final fifth time through i'm like oh wait a second there's a lot in here and i knew there was something in here so pete is her younger brother who died and then she gets upset her eyes sparkled with tears it's made in germany she's she's happy because it reminds her of her younger brother pete who died and then her husband says and um, and I assume she is actually married to him. The only it's the first line, right? The shout out line that it doesn't say that they're 
is the one that says they're married. The rest could be, it's you know, they're just living together. But, I mean, it's the 1950s, as you say, right? So, um, yeah. her eyes sparkled with tears. It's made in Germany, Larry said a moment later, and he brings it back to money. Uh, he knows some guy in the clock business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have Doris made a funny little sound. She's upset. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. Now, he's worried that he made a mistake by talking about the money, and she is upset. But it's wholesale, baby. That's right. It's wholesale, baby. Right. Um, and she runs out of the room. Never satisfied. Not nothing. all that way. Never get enough. Now, uh, I was thinking, what's he talking about? How many times she asked for cuckoo blocks and furs and stuff, right? Um, well, this is this is sex. This is not. This is uh, this is sex. I think he's talking about because she's got her lover, right? Right. What's her lover's name? Can't remember. Bob. Bob. Bob that's right. Bob. Uh, but, but lover, lover in the 1950s sense, not, not. I don't think she's having an affair with Bob. You don't think so? Intell- no. Oh, that's what I thought. Intellectual, maybe. Uh, I mean, she wishes she could. I think that that's entirely it's right. It, 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 it's not. It's not. It's not as if they have uh, spent a lot of time up in the bedroom, because remember, she says when Bob comes over, uh, what does she say? She says, it would be inappropriate for me to have the cuckoo clock up in the bedroom. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, okay, she, 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 everyone talks to the cuckoo clock, too. I think this is pretty strange. Because I'm expecting the clock to talk back, but it never did. Uh, maybe it does. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't I, speak. Yeah. Anthrop- anthropomorphizing it, yes, but... I think lots of people who have cuckoo clocks talk to the inanimate object. I think you're right. I think that's, okay. that's, that, that makes sense. Um, anybody spot where uh, she talks about uh, showing it to Bob? Let's see here. Uh, oh, <laughs> the story is so short, it's hard to find things. Um, I don't think he was impressed with it either. No, Bob liked uh, Bob. No, he liked it. Oh. Bob liked it. Um, and she made sure that he would like it. Uh, okay, here, here's what we've got. Um, she closed the door, and I want to show you something, she said. You haven't seen it. He was interested. An antique or what? She took his arm, leading him towards the dining room. You'll love it, Bobby. She stopped, wide-eyed. I hope you will. You must, you must love it. It means so much to me. He means so much. Okay, so now the bird is a he, right? He? Bob frowned. Who is he? Doris laughed. You're jealous. <laughs> a moment later, they stood before the clock, looking up at it. He'll come out in a few minutes. Wait until you see him. I know you will get along just fine. What does Larry think of him? <laughs> now he's talking about him being a him, right? They don't, they don't like each other. Sometimes when Larry's here, he won't come out. Larry gets mad. If he doesn't come out on time, he says, says what? Doris looked down. He's always saying he's been robbed, even if he did, even if he did get it wholesale. But I know he won't come out because he doesn't like Larry. When I'm alone, he comes out for, right for me every 15 minutes, even though 
he only has to come out on the hour. I think this is this is a really strange clock in that it can choose whether to come out or not every fifteen minutes. Uh, well, although he's to murder you. Well, yeah, but I mean that could have been an accident, right? Could have been, although I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> oh. I yeah. Bird bird definitely work. kills the husband. Yeah, or or causes him to kill himself. Yeah, that seems that seems uh, pretty clear. Uh, okay, uh, he comes he comes out for me because he wants to. We talk. I tell him things. Of course, I'd like to have him upstairs in my room, but it wouldn't be right. Why wouldn't it be right to have a cuckoo clock upstairs in your bedroom? Because it would keep you up all night. That's a good point. Okay, I mean, and, I mean, you know, there was like a gigantic fad for cuckoo clocks in the 30s or 40s. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so they're fun. Just yes, but but they were, uh, you know, ubiquitous in the early 50s. Hmm. Lots of people had them, cheap knockoffs, all that sort of thing. And you, you know, you had to pull the. I mean, it it it, it insinuated itself into your daily routine. It, it, like mm-hmm. you guys probably don't remember when you had to wind clocks, and I can still remember my grandfather going around the house at night winding all the clocks. We had a ship's clock and a grandfather's clock, and a, you know, it, it 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 was something you did every day, like eat and and you know, I mean, it was it was part of your life, and so I think in context for. For, for that era, it's very common to find a middle-class house with a cuckoo clock that is a legacy from the cuckoo clock craze of the last mm-hmm. 10 years. And um, it is like a new member of the family because it requires attention on a daily basis. And, and It is. That's a very nice way of putting it. Like a new member of the family. Right. And and it's it's natural for you to anthropomorphize it and give it yeah. a name. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think so, you know I mean, the the answer of pomorphizing uh, is why you wouldn't want it in your bedroom, right? <laughs> why well, I think that's like, right. Yeah, but who doesn't uh, want you watching? But notice she doesn't say it would be like it would be too noisy. She says it wouldn't be right. Well, why would it be not? Why would it not be right to have a cuckoo clock in your bedroom? Well, probably because of the symbolic value of the cuckoo clock, right? Uh, that's what I was going for when I was trying to understand the story. I was trying to understand, okay, the cuckoo clock is a symbol. What is this a symbol of? So it's, a, you guys well, know what a cuckoo bird is, right? Everybody yeah. Know what a cuckoo bird is? Tama? Not, uh, oh, yeah. Some kind of mm-hmm. a bird. Okay, well, yeah, but it's a special kind of bird because it's a brood parasite. What it does is it doesn't take care of its own young finds another bird to take care of its young. Hmm. So it flies into the nest of a bird that has recently hatched some eggs, or not, sorry, hatched some eggs, laid some eggs, and it plops one down and flies away. And its egg is similar in color, if not identical to that of the bird's uh, natural eggs. And... It has a harder shell so that it can be dropped in very quickly and not get broken. And it also uh, matures faster so that it's the firstborn. Hmm. And then uh, the bird raises it up. The, the, the bird that's being parasite 
parasitized upon, raises it up very quickly uh, because the, the birds, the cuckoo clock, uh, sorry, cuckoo is very demanding, and uh, it the cuckoo often kills uh, the other eggs, or knocks out the other birds. So it's a um, it's a parasite, right? And that that was really interesting. And I thought, wow, well, it's a cuckoo clock. That's just what they're called, but. It's a symbol for something because she's got this boyfriend or her friend she has something in common with. And there's this husband kicks them out of the house because they were spending some time together, right? Hmm. But before this scene started, there was another line that I wanted to throw out to you. And I thought, what? Wait a second. That's the time I caught it. And I said, okay, there's definitely something going on here. Okay, so right before... Right before they they go into the house and look at the cuckoo clock, um, there's a, a couple of lines here. Um, on one Saturday morning, when Larry was down at the office working over some important special accounts, I love that they're important special accounts. <laughs> they're not important. They're not special. They're important special. It doesn't matter what, uh, what uh, Larry's job is, right? It's just he had to be out of the house. It sounds to me like that's a story, right? I have to go down to the plant and look at some important special accounts, he says to his wife. And then he shows up later, right? He, I think he expected to see them. Mm-hmm. That's just for the important special accounts there. Anyway, mm-hmm. one Saturday morning when Larry was down at the office working over some important special accounts, Bob Chambers came to the front porch and rang the bell. Doris was taking a quick shower. She dried herself and slipped into her robe. When she opened the door, Bob stepped inside, grinning. Hi, he said, looking around. It's all right. Larry's at the office. Fine, Bob gazed at her slim legs below the hem of the robe. How nice you look today, she laughed. Be careful. Maybe I shouldn't let you in after all. And there's, there's, uh, uh, this is the first time I read the story. I was thinking, okay, she's the cuckoo claw. She's the cuckoo. And he's, he's coming out the door or something. But no, I don't think that's it. I'll just keep going here. Uh, uh, she's, she laughs. Be careful. You, maybe I shouldn't let you in after all. They looked at one another, half amused, half frightened. Presently, Bob said, if you want, I'll. No, for God's sake. She caught hold of his sleeve. Just get out of the doorway so I can close it. Mrs. Peters across the street, you know. She closed the door. And I want to show you something, she said. You haven't seen it. He's interested in antique or what? Um, the woman across the street is Mrs. Peters. Yeah. Hmm. And the, Yeah, Pete. Yeah. Oh, I oh, oh. his name. Named after his dad. I don't know what to make of that, but uh, yeah, you know. he's named after his dad. Pete, Pete. If Pete was her brother, then it was only her half brother. And Mrs. Peters is the nosy lady across the street who doesn't like <laughs> our main character. Hmm. Doris. Okay, I I just 
think these are all threading rings. It's three o'clock in the morning. You're sitting in front of the Smith Corona. You got to get, you know, 5,000 words out by mm-hmm. 10 a.m. And, and he chose Pete and he chose Peters. And I'm not saying that stuff isn't there. I'm saying that that was not at the forefront of his consciousness when he was. Mm-hmm. He was it he was, was in his consciousness, though. So. Yes. Certainly. There was probably a network of connections to his personal life that that are there in everything that he wrote. Yeah. It's just harder to see them when he's hitting us with his, you know, like mind-boggling ideas. Yeah. To see the the feeling in there, but all, all you know, all of his characters are pissed out, pissed off, burned out, divorced. You know, the the wife dead on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes the wife is actually the bad guy. The the you know, I think what's clans of the Alphane Moon? I think he, the ex wife is a is a serious problem, and there's a lot know. of a lot of wife problems in his stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was married like five times, wasn't he? I think three. But um, and they may be the stigmata of Palmer Eldrick, but um, <laughs> ouch. I, yeah, no, I, I, he was with Tessa at the end, I think, and and I don't know her what what ultimately happened to her, but yeah, he did have several divorces. I think she's and, still alive. She just wrote a book about him, I think. Okay, well that wouldn't be surprising. Um, so <laughs> you know, I this is just, I mean. Somebody runs into the room and says, you need to write this in the next five hours and get it to me. And, and you just bang it out. So all of the subliminal stuff that would normally be there is there because you had to bang it out. And you're looking for some sort of framework. And the only framework that you can grab onto 24 hours a day is your personal life. So you put little details in there. But, but if that significance is supposed to be part of the literature. I mean, okay, I guess what this means is we're coming down on the sides of literary criticism in terms of, you know, structuralism versus post-structuralism and all, and all that sort of stuff. So the, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the writer's intent figure in any way to, into our analysis of the text, or does the text stand alone and we get to read in whatever the hell we want. Can't we have both? Well, <laughs> you and I and everybody here can have both. Uh, but if we actually were in the field of literary criticism, uh, we would have to pick a side. Does, does the author matter? Does his intent matter? Or is the text a standalone series of semiotic objects that create a complex interrelated web of images that you know, transmit something that the author didn't really intend? And and I think both of those things are true. It's just there's there are two different fields of study. Mm. Well, what do you what do you that's that's what I I was mostly uh, worried about when I couldn't understand what why is there this why why is everybody upset and I mean I I like how the husband makes that he he says you take that stupid cuckoo clock with you and then he says no no I've changed my mind I'm going to keep the cuckoo clock. Um, it it seemed to me like he was trying to punish them, right? And Cuckoo yeah. Clock, uh, he didn't even like it. It didn't like him. <laughs> mm. um, and it can ultimately kill them. It was a poor choice, right? But it also brought out the problems of the relationship. I think this is this is the classic Cuckoo situation in that in you've got a, a child who is born not of 
uh, one of the parents, a bastard child, right? And the step-parent, I guess, uh, has to choose whether to uh, accept the child or not. And he takes it, but only as a punishment, and it ends up not helping him. I think that that's what I'm reading into it. What do you guys? What did you guys think about this story? You probably didn't go through it five times, like I. Well, I, I didn't go through it five times, but um, what I kind of said at the beginning seems to bear out that uh, and explain everyone's behavior is um, the, the thing is she knows that the clock has this ability immediately, mm-hmm. and she says this clock is just like my mother had when Pete was still alive. Mm-hmm. Which makes me think that she's seen this thing in action before. That's what I thought. Okay. This specific one or one just like it? One, one just like it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. She's, she's yeah, seen it in action and uh, yeah. Pete is no longer with us. So that makes me think, okay, she's seen this thing work before. And well, maybe she's... This, oops, this, go ahead. I mean, you think it might be this very cuckoo clock? It sure could be. I mean, but she <laughs> well, says it's just like my mother had. But but see, the thing is, if you if you think that way, that she's seen this in action before, then her actions in the rest of the story and the reason that she's hmm. upset at the beginning makes sense. And then, um, you know, the husband well, you, is you just... think it killed Pete then? Yes, exactly. That's where I'm... Ah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And then... Mm. Um, yeah, from there, I mean, she knows what it's capable of, and she's she's like you know in an unhappy but relationship. Pete is the husband, her husband's kind of an ass, so. Um, but Pete is the husband, then, right? Well, hang on. Okay, you come through a gigantic uh, depression. You go into a world war, and <laughs> after the world war, all the men come home, and there's this unbelievable flurry of marriage. Mm-hmm. And yeah. very little, very little thought put into that. And so, in the early fifties, what you end up with are just this incredibly wide group of impulsive marriages that probably shouldn't have taken place. Mm-hmm. So, what what Phil is describing is a common everyday thing that you see yeah. in the fifties. So, so there's just a ton of guys, and in fact, I even toyed with the idea of Bob there being gay. Uh, yeah. I thought I thought that as well, but the problem yeah. is, is the story doesn't support that. Right, 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 right. He but looks at her like, legs. You know, that's her gay friend. Yeah, exactly. He does. Maybe he, he was admiring her asset. Uh, no, he's a hound gay. dog for sure. He gay. You know. No. I think he's genuinely interested. Well, maybe he's not genuinely interested in antiques. And uh, I mean, I was kind of suspicious when she said he was interested in buttons. It's like, no, no guy is interested in buttons. <laughs> Collecting <laughs> buttons and stamps. Okay, stamps. I get buttons. No, that's a girl thing. Uh, okay, yeah, that's probably true. Unless they're he's like metrosexual. You know, yeah, unless they're bad, you know, like military badges or something crazy like that. Right, 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 right. Or gold from the Roman Empire. Or sure, like yeah. But, but, um, I, I think he's, and in fact, in the end, he is concerned and asks the cop or the doctor about it, right? And so, I mean, the question is, we're going to read all this stuff into it. Is he? Does he realize that he's next in line? Um, coming hmm. to him next. That would be that- your. Your that, yeah, <laughs> but I I don't. 
but see, I, I mean, it's symbolic. I think, I think you've got to say it's symbolic. The, the cuckoo clock is not a baby, right? But I was thinking Bob has given her a baby, except he didn't give it to her. It was her husband. So that doesn't work. It's a symbol of the cuckoo uh, that Bob thinks he's going to, sorry, Larry thinks he's going to get, right? Larry thinks he's going to get a cuckoo from a cuckoo egg from the relationship between Bob and Doris. And so he says, get out. That's the reason people are angry at other people being jealous, right? They don't want, uh, well, that's one reason anyways. Monogamy okay. uh, is designed to uh, make sure that the, the uh, male gets a, a genetic error. And if the cuckoo clock is, is a symbol of, of that infidelity, then he, he doesn't want to give it to them, but he also doesn't want it himself. Um, and then it sort of falls apart. But I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think that, uh, hurts Bob. I don't think there's any reason that. No, think I, I don't even murder. Murder is bird will attack Bob. The, the cuckoo is a champion. It's her champion. She's unable to act. Yeah. I thought it was kind of like an abusive relationship too. And, in a sense that it it pecked him on the on the hand when he was winding it up. Yeah, and uh, I mean she's not he's not very mean, but he gets it a little bad about Larry. He gets a little resentful. I I was I was rooting for him at the beginning because you know he's getting a good deal. I like a good deal. <laughs> no, no, I like a good deal too. You don't tell the recipient. Yeah, I, I'm getting that. I'm get okay. I'm get I'm getting that. You don't you don't tell people what a great deal you got them on their gift, <laughs> but I think right. that, it's, that it's like when you go home and your mother says, "If you don't eat it, I'm just going to throw it away." You okay. know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he's rude. He doesn't deserve to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, Tamo, what's your what's your take on this story? What did you think when you read it? Um, I I didn't really read. That much into it, I just thought of, of the uh, cuckoo clock as some uh, supernatural force that might uh, exact justice or something. Yeah, well, it on, is. Uh, Larry, I think I think uh, it's just so shocking that everybody in the story assumes that the cuckoo clock is worth talking to, uh, and and it can be ascribed feelings and resentments, and <laughs> nobody questions this. That that's what makes it feel like a fairy tale to me. Because if you oh, think about wow. it, it doesn't really have any fantasy element, except the way it's told. There's no, there's no magic. There's no uh, science fiction elements, right? It's just a story about a cuckoo clock, and uh, it kills it, somebody. It, it is more in keeping with folklore and mythology and that sort of thing. I, yeah. I agree. It's it's a it's a it uses the elements of proto story. But you know, it, I, I think you have to call it a fantasy if you've got I mean that we're not yeah, yeah, analyzing that cuckoo. It actually acted under of its own volition to yeah. um, create yeah. a situation that made its owner happier. But the, but I think that that's uh, that's the way the story's told. Right. I mean, if we rewrote the story uh, from a first-person point of view, we would have to say that there's something wrong with the clock. 
and that if you well, ascribe even, if you ascribe any sort of uh, malice to the clock or design to the clock, I would just say that the clock is malfunctioning, right? Exactly. Exactly. Think of it as a police report. So I'm the cop that comes over, and right. I know everything. Okay, I know that he was working on the cuckoo clock. It came out. It hit him in the eye. He fell over backwards. Hit his head. Bang. He's dead. I would still put that in the report. Mm-hmm. The cuckoo clock was the you know the thing that made it happen. The first domino. Yeah. But I certainly wouldn't put in. And I looked at it, and it looked back at me, and I got a funny feeling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I, I think this story's done. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. it yeah, I did enjoy it. Out of 13 minutes. In fact, I, I, I read it uh, to my it. daughter. I read it out loud to my daughter. Oh, wow. You know, because you, you always wow. say, hey, you should read these out loud, right? So I said, okay. A lot of you them. Know, yeah. This yeah. one's short enough, so I'm going to go ahead and read it out loud. So I read it out loud to my daughter, and she was completely taken by it. And then the end happened, and she was like, What? <laughs> <laughs> she was disappointed that it stopped where it stopped. Yeah, she was like, wait a minute. Tale, but it's not a fairy tale for kids, I It think. was like it was just getting started and uh, it stopped, you know, in, yeah, in her not, eyes. It's not quite the right length. For, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one story I do with my students a lot is uh, James Thurber's story called The Princess in the Tin Box. Mm-hmm. Have I sent that to you? No, huh? You haven't. That's, it's a really fun story. Um it's a, it's a, you know, James Thurber wrote a whole bunch of uh, modern fairy tales, I guess, uh-huh. in the 1940s and 50s, I, I think, probably for the Slick magazines. Greg? And none of them are in the public domain. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. It's on one oh, of those. Right. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love Thurber. Yeah. <laughs> so on, on one of the um, uh, Anthony Boucher lists was... Uh, I think more, more store, more, more collected fairy tales of modern fairy tales of uh, Thurber, and mm. uh, this this one I don't know how I happened across it, but it's 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 just like I, I guess they're all like this. There, it's a fairy tale about a princess who who is raised in a castle and she gets um, nothing but goodness all her life. She's given the best of everything, right? She sleeps on a pearl. Pearl encrusted bed. Uh, she eats only cake. Um, she loves. Uh, uh, she throws pearl. Yeah, she throws pearls instead of rice at her sister's older sister's wedding. Um, hmm. uh, the the musicians who come to play for her are using the finest, you know, everything, right? And then it's time for her to get married. And there's three uh, princes that come. Uh, maybe it's four princes. Three or four princes who come to the uh, castle as suitors, and they're all offering uh, different different um, wonders as their dowry or reverse dowry or whatever it is. And the yeah. um, the uh, the first prince comes from a very wealthy land. He comes riding up on a red charger, I think it is, um, and he's got a. a a uh, pearl encrusted or gold encrusted box with uh, many crowns within it or something like that. Second prince, same story. And then the third prince, he comes from very poor land. He comes riding a plow horse, um, and he has he's carrying a tin box with some mica and uh, hornblende inside. And uh, and of course the princess has 
had wonderful things all her life. So <laughs> it goes on and on. And, and she has to make her decision. And it does it, you know, three and then three and then three. And we we get to the certain point in the story and we say, I know where this story's going because I've read a million fairy tales, right? He says, of course she's going to choose the prince from the from the poor land because she's never seen anything so fine as mica and hornblende, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, two common minerals found in everything else. Right. Because all she sees is gold, right? Of course, um, you're supposed to assume that that's the choice she's going to make, but that isn't the choice she makes. Instead, the choice she makes is to marry one of the other princes. <laughs> and the explanation is, well, she's not an idiot. She she knows the value of everything else just because she, uh, she you know, she doesn't, she likes fine things. <laughs> it says. She's been raised right. on fine things. And, and I think the final line is, anyone who thought that the, the, she was going to choose the final prince should stay after class and write on the chalkboard, I would prefer to have a tin box full of mica and hornblende <laughs> to all the riches of a kingdom <laughs> like this. How oh, funny. I think the modern story. It, yeah, it's, it, yeah. yeah, I think they're fairy tales for, mo- for the modern era or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, funny, funny stuff. But also, it t- you know, we get trained on fairy tales as to what to expect, and we kind of anticipate the ending. And there's a satisfaction with guessing what the ending's going to be, and it being what you guessed. And this is an overturning of that. Mm-hmm. And right, right. And I think that's why your daughter didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't find this one satisfying because it looks like it's a fairy tale, and then it it. It's, it is a fairy tale, but it's not a... It's a fractured fairy tale. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, a noir fairy tale, in a way. <laughs> yep. Nice. Yeah, that was really popular back then. Uh, there was another guy named Frank Stockton. Mm-hmm. Frank R. Stockton, I don't know if you read I, I've done a bunch of his stories. Um, uh, but the, the Bee Man of Warren and the Griffin and the Minor Cannon and all this sort of stuff. Uh, he does the same kind of thing. It's It's... it's you know the, the one I'm thinking of. The, the minor canon means it's a it's a vicar at a church. He's the, mm-hmm. the minor canon, and, and the griffin comes to eat people, and the, the priest goes out and and talks him out of it, and they have this weird relationship that goes on for a while. Um, and and the griffin starves himself because the only person in town that he feels is worthy of actually eating is the minor canon, and he likes the guy, um, mm-hmm. so he just goes somewhere and lays down and dies. Um, mm-hmm. But but you know, there's a lot of that that fractured fairy tale approach to things in the, in the, oh, probably starting in the, you know, the 1890s and going to the mm-hmm. early 40s. There's a lot of stuff like that. I remember, uh, and then uh, early, or uh, maybe late 80s, early 90s, something like that, there was a, a bunch of those uh, revived new ones, but they were, uh, you know, Snow White as a horror story. I think yeah. Show. No, it's it's, it, and uh, again, I'm probably showing my age here. How many of you guys have actually sat down and watched Bullwinkle? It was, yeah, it's a very that. young kid. I've, I've, I I saw a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Bullwinkle. When I was the, kid, uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say uh, the actress that played the flying squirrel also did the talking to you. <laughs> yeah. <she's, laughs> Full circle. June Foray yeah. is her name, and she's a, an unbelievably good 
a voiceover person and worked with Freeberg in the 50s and, you know, just A-list people, and she's great. And she's Rocky. Um, right. And she's still alive and still working. Wow. But when, when I was a kid, Bullwinkle was the South Park of my generation. It was seditious. And it was something really? that appealed to the adults as well as the children. Looking back on it now, I realize it's not. I mean, I have a nostalgic, you know, liking of it. So uh, I'm not as objective as I would be. But, but for when it was on, um, there were all kinds of references and stuff in it. And, and, and so one of the segments on Bullwinkle was called Fractured Fairy Tales. Mm, yeah, vaguely remember and that. This, this, another great voiceover guy named Edward Everett Horton uh, would tell these stories and, and, and Jay Ward and the gang would take, you know, a standard fairy tale and just turn it upside down exactly the way we're talking about here. And, and when you hear people say it's a fractured fairy tale, that's what they're referring to mm-hmm. in the segment on Bullwinkle, uh, where you take a fairy tale and turn it upside down, which isn't too different from like Shrek and stuff like that. I mean, yes, people are still doing that kind of thing, but, but that, that era the first half of the 20th century is where it, it had its heyday. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to check. I don't know why they don't show that on cable anymore. It's probably on something, you know? It is. I never you know, it. Um, they used to take, uh, they, they, you know, one of the, there's two narrators, and the narrators um, do this narration at a breakneck pace. And the, one of them was William Conrad, the first one, because he was big on radio. That's the guy who played Cannon, mm-hmm. the big fat guy. He played Nero Wolf for a while. Jake the Batman. Yeah, 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 that's him. And, and so Jay Ward kept saying, read it faster, read it faster. And, and William Conrad was like, it, it's, they won't understand if I read it that fast. because that's what I want, read it faster. So finally he handed William Conrad the thing and said, start reading. And he lit fire to the piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> finish before it burns and he spits it out so the narration in the thing is just it's ridiculous it's self-conscious it breaks down the fourth wall you know it's that was all new back then it was before um like um i mean the marx brothers did it a little but really bing crosby and bob hope in the road pictures are, mm-hmm. they actually turn and address the audience and so they break down the fourth wall, and that was another conceit of Bullwinkle was this, this. There was no fourth wall. The narrator would talk directly to you and make jokes about how stupid the story was. Um, yeah, and, and so, but, but anyway, I don't want to go on and on about Bullwinkle, but it, 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 it set the stage. It set the stage for a lot of the stuff that, that, that you know, the self-deprecating stuff that we like today. It, it was the first of its kind in that way. Can you guys believe we've talked for 45 minutes about a 13-minute story? <laughs> yeah. Mm. I guess nice. a 10-hour book, we have to talk how long? <laughs> uh, probably about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Good mm-hmm. point. It, but, but actually, there was not that much substance in the Forever War piece there. And uh, Yeah, I think there's a lot of plot going on rather than ideas, but yeah, we got it sorted. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think we got it sorted. I think I liked it the first time more. Um, but I still, you know, I, I, I thought I'd come away from that story with a uh, sense of better understanding of where our drones, uh, drones taking over the world uh, combat is going. And I think I came a little away with that, but 
Um, I think we're a long way from from uh, the second half of that book or the second uh, the second part of that book where everybody's communing with uh, each other's brain. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, we're, we're doing it right now. Right now. Yeah. yeah. I suppose, <laughs> but uh, we're we're in sync, Greg. <laughs> yeah. See? Anecdotal proof. Well, we better not be on for 15 hours or 15 days or whatever, because i got to keep no, my anger go murder, right? <laughs> yeah. The 24-hour live SFF audio channel. Oh, no. <laughs> no I, I need a break to wind my cuckoo clock. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.